This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. We'll be in 2 Corinthians tonight. So if you would, turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 15. Figuring out a concise chronology of Paul's ministry is challenging and still exciting. It's challenging in that he mentions events in his letters that are not always included in the historical narrative that we find in Luke's Acts of the Apostles. But it is exciting in that when you take the Acts of the Apostles and overlay them across Paul's epistles, it fills in some gaps that Luke for only reasons justified by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has in his writings. Now, I want to be careful. I'm not equating gaps in Luke's narrative with incompleteness in our Bible. Luke wrote as he was moved by the Holy Spirit. Inspiration necessitates that we have only and precisely what God wants us to have in our Bible. So when the Pauline epistles provide amplifying information, The epistles in the narrative need to be combined to provide the whole counsel of God. Never should we assume that because Paul provides one perspective and Luke another, that the two perspectives compete with each other. No, Paul's epistles and Luke's narrative are complementary. Such is the case that we see in this passage of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now Paul gives us a little more detail on his time in a place called Troas. And he reveals much of his ministry in a city called Corinth. To help us visualize this, visualize this, Troas was a region just to the west of the Hellespont, that narrow, natural strait of water that separates Asia from Europe. It connects the Aegean Sea to the south with the Black Sea to the north. We know the Hellespont today as the Dardanelles, or maybe you've heard it, the Strait of Gallipoli, from World War I infamy. In this passage, Paul also mentions a man named Titus. Titus, at least the Titus who traveled with Paul, do you know he's never mentioned by Luke or anywhere else in the book of Acts? All we know about Titus is from the Pauline epistles. So we assume Titus joined Paul while he was in Troas for this first time. Now, in Acts 16, Luke tells us of the first time that Paul passed through the region of Troas. It was while in Troas the first time that Paul received that well-known vision of a man in Macedonia asking for Paul to come there. And, of course, we refer to that as the Macedonian call. Many confuse this vision and his, this opening of a door in Macedonian with what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. In this passage, Paul writes, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach the Christ's gospel, a door was opened unto me of the Lord. This door that was opened is a helpful indicator to us in identifying when and why Paul was in Troas. In Acts 16, Luke tells us that Paul passed through Troas on his second missionary journey as well. On that mission trip, Paul and his entourage has visited or actually revisited the cities of Derby and Lystra. And then they passed through the regions of Phrygia and Galatia. Derby was 
as far west as Paul had traveled on his first missionary journey. And on this second mission trip, Paul meets Timothy there, who joins him. From Lystra, the mission team comes to Troas. Look at how Luke describes the situation in Acts chapter 16. I'll read it for you. You could turn there if you'd like, but I know you're in 2 Corinthians. But in Acts chapter 16, verse 4 and 5, this is what Luke records. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. Luke details the success of establishing churches in this part of Asia. But then Luke says this in verses 6 and 7 of Acts chapter 16. Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were, listen to this word, forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go to Bithynia, but, hear it again, the Spirit suffered or allowed them not. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. Luke records that they were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. This hindrance of the Spirit to their preaching in Asia, in, in Asia induced them, instead of returning back through Asia like they had done on their first missionary journey, instead, Paul charts a new route through Phrygia and Galatia, which results in the founding of the churches in Galatia. But the Holy Spirit is prompting them to move further west. He does not even want Paul to stay in Asia. We see Luke uses words like forbidden and suffered or allowed not. Let's read a little more of Acts 16 and picking up in verse 8 again. They, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, Immediately, we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called for us to preach the gospel unto them. This vision Paul had, as I've said, is the Macedonian call. Having been forbidden to stay in Asia by the Spirit, Paul has a vision to cross the Hellespont and take the gospel into Europe. I like the words Luke used to describe the decision to go into Europe. Assuredly gathering. Isn't that how it is when we serve the Lord? How often do we step out in faith, sure of really nothing other than the fact that God's called us? We are grasping at truth by intertwining ideas. We are confident in nothing other than that the Lord has a plan. We are assured that God is sovereign, but we are gathering we're just trying to trust him. It was here where Paul had a vision, this Macedonian call that Luke, uh, we're calling them to Macedonia, that Luke joins Paul and Silas. It's interesting, you can see that the pronouns change in verses 9 and 10 of Acts chapter 16. Until verse 10, the pronouns were them and they. In verse 10, the pronouns change to us and we. It's that drastic of a change right there. Luke has joined the missions team. And is going to Europe with them. But this initial time in Troas with being forbidden to and a vision to go to Macedonia, it's very different than Paul's description of being in Troas in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 
In 2 Corinthians, Paul describes being where, remember what he said in 2 Corinthians? He was where a door was opened. That is very different from Luke's description in Acts 16. Paul sees Troas from a very different perspective. Doors are not closing in Troas to Paul. They are opening in Macedonia. We go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 now and pick it up in verse 13. I'll limit my commentary here as we read through verse 17. Paul says, after being in Troas, that he says this, I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. Now, thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge to, by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. The verse I'd like to hone in on this evening is verse 14. Let me read it again. Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word. I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, would be acceptable in your sight. And I pray these in the name of Jesus. Amen. Paul's relationship to the church of Corinth is complicated. Now, this is just my opinion. But I think, again, this is just my opinion. That Paul's affection for the church of Corinth has, perhaps, again, just my opinion, has had the most profound effect on his ministry. Because of Paul's extensive writings, we know more about the church at Corinth than we really do about any other church in the New Testament. Both his second and third missionary journeys were greatly influenced by what was taking place in Corinth. So I think that Paul had, that this specific church had more influence on Paul's travels, his writings, and the content of his doctrinal teaching than any other of the New Testament churches that are mentioned. Now, I think we tend to read the Bible in a very just disjointed, linear, and often disconnected way. Let me explain why. For example, we read Acts, and then later on we'll read 1 and 2 Corinthians. And in doing so, we tend to have this methodical vision of Paul just going from city to city, establishing churches and moving on. But the work that Paul did in these churches, it affected his entire mission journey. There were things that were going on that would affect him late, years later. I'd highly recommend at some point, if you haven't done so, that you read the Bible chronologically it'll take you through acts and then it'll put beside it what paul was writing at the time and i think it becomes more alive because 
we often just look at this methodically looking at Paul just going from church to church, city to city, establishing churches, moving on. He goes from city to city, makes disciples, establishes church, and and there's a lot of adversity on the way. Though this is all very true in reading the Bible, what we do is when we read it in such a way, in a disconnected manner, we often remove the humanity from Paul. We forget that he was a very real person with very real passions. He had very real faults. And he had very real emotions. And I think if you read Paul's letter to Corinth, you can see his emotional draw to this particular city and to this church and the draw that that church had on him. I think this relationship Paul had with Corinth was unlike any other church, say even with Philippi or the church at Thessalonica or at Ephesus. Again, this is just my opinion, but what is not my opinion is that Paul said that this church that of this church, that his joy was wrapped up in their joy. That if he made them sorrowful, then he had not one to bring him joy, for he found joy in their joy. Paul loved dearly this church at Corinth. The first time Paul visited Corinth, he spent about 18 months there. He then left Corinth and spent about three years in Ephesus. You'll recall that we have two letters in our Bible that he wrote to this church at Corinth. However, 1 Corinthians 5.9 indicates that Paul wrote other letters to this church. However, 1 Corinthians 5.9, it indicates we have other letters to church, but throughout the two epistles, we see that he wrote perhaps as many as four letters to this single church. It was about a year and a half after Paul left Corinth the first time that Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians. And we actually don't have that letter. But we know about this letter because Paul mentions it in chapter 5 of the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. In this letter, he wrote to respond to the news that the church was struggling spiritually. Apparently, the Corinthians responded with a letter of their own, asking for clarification on certain matters of life and theology. Those questions revealed some deep confusion that resulted in some serious problems with how they were living their lives. So this prompts Paul to write another letter, which we do have, and that's the epistle we call 1 Corinthians. Now, of the two letters that we do have, the first epistle was certainly the most harsh. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to correct what he saw as erroneous views in the Corinthian church. There were divisions in the church, pagan practices. They were syncretizing those with the gospel. There was even open and blatant immorality in the church. So Paul writes that there should be no divisions among them. And he doesn't write to shame them, but to warn them as beloved sons. You can read 1 Corinthians, and you'll sometimes cheer, and you'll sometimes cry, and then you'll sometimes blush at what's going on there. And sometimes you'll do all three of those in the same chapter. Paul not only offered counsel and direction for the church, but he also said that he hoped to get back to Corinth and encourage them face to face. And according to 2 Corinthians 1.15, Paul planned to proceed from Ephesus by Corinth to Macedonia and then from Macedonia back to Corinth and stay the winter with them before going to Jerusalem. But Paul's plans changed and he wasn't able to go. So he sends Timothy to carry the epistle to the church. 
And Timothy comes back to Paul and he reports back to him that the situation in Corinth was worse than they thought. It was bad. And they did not do anything that Paul had told them in his letter. So in response to Timothy's report, Paul immediately puts everything aside and he makes an urgent visit to Corinth to try to put things right. But this direct confrontation with the Corinthians turned out to be a bitter and humiliating experience for Paul. This was the painful visit that caused him much sorrow that he talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. The church, they not only rejected Paul's instructions, but they had chosen to follow other men who opposed Paul. And he, they treated him with disrespect. They ridiculed his apostleship. You might think at this Paul point, Paul would wash his hands of this debacle at Corinth. But instead, Paul writes a third letter to the Corinthians. We also don't have this letter. But we know about this fourth letter. Uh, we don't know about that letter, but we know about his fourth letter, what we call 2 Corinthians. And we know from 2 Corinthians that this third letter was severe and tearful letter. In 2 Corinthians 2 verse 4, Paul says he wrote this letter out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears. This time, Paul sends Titus to deliver the letter to Corinth while he remains in Ephesus. Paul sends Titus with a full commission to remedy the fallout precipitated by Timothy's delivery of 1 Corinthians and Paul's painful visit. Particularly a significant personal offense and challenge to Paul's authority by an unnamed individual. During this journey, Titus served as the courier for what is commonly known as the severe letter. Appalling missive that has been lost but is referred to in 2 Corinthians. So here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, when Paul says he is waiting at Troas and Titus doesn't show up, he is waiting for Titus to bring the response of the Corinthian church to his letter. Paul knew he was hard on the Corinthians in his letter. So you can imagine his anxiety of how this letter was to be received. His anxiety is only exasperated when Titus doesn't show up. And one can only assume that they had a prearranged place and time in Troas. But eventually Paul and Titus do reunite. And Paul finally receives word from news at Corinth. The good news was that they had repented. And their treatment of Paul and the gospel message, they were taking it to heart. But some in the church still remained and remained in a lifestyle of immorality. And while others continued to look down on Paul because of his suffering, all of this was made worse by a group of false apostles who undermined Paul's authentic apostleship and made it difficult for Paul to minister to the Corinthians. But it's in this context that Paul writes his fourth letter to the Corinthians, the second one that we have in our Bible. Titus then returned to Corinth carrying 2 Corinthians with him. It is also in this letter that Paul describes to the church of Corinth the practice of grace giving for the poor at Jerusalem. And Paul finally joins Titus in Corinth later. And from Corinth, Paul then sent Titus to organize the collection of alms for those Christians at Jerusalem. Titus was a troubleshooter, a peacemaker, an administrator, and a missionary. So we have a historical record of at least four letters that Paul wrote to Corinth. But since we only have two that are inspired and are included in our Bible, to avoid confusion, I'll refer to them as the first and second letter or epistle to the Corinthians. So Paul's second letter to Corinth is decidedly more positive than the first. 
Though the church has has a ways to go in their spiritual growth, Paul is encouraged by their repentance. This is evident in the verse of emphasis for our text, verse 14. Paul has just expressed his distress over not being able to meet Titus in Troas. He was anxious to hear about the church in Corinth and whether or not they were listening and heeding his destruction. But then he says this, Now thanks be unto God. That word now is a simple word. But it is on that word that Paul pivots his perspective of Corinth. He was distressed by not meeting Titus. So he heads to Macedonia, hoping he'll meet Titus there to get word of what's going on in Corinth. He is anxious and impatient for word from Corinth. And then he says, as we would put it today, here's how he says it. But on the other hand, I thank God who gives us victory in Christ. What a pivot he makes. I think it's between verse 13 and 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that Paul, that's where Paul meets up with Titus. And receives the good report from Corinth. In other words, Paul is not anticipating that God will eventually give him good news. No, I think he is thanking God for the present triumph he is experiencing and what he's seen happen in Corinth. He is living out that old proverb, as cold waters to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Paul, in the fullness of his gratitude to God, is making known a special experience of divine grace. But let's take a closer look at this triumph in Christ that Paul talks about. He uses that word triumph. And a quick reading of it might only give us a broad idea that we just have victory in Christ. Though we do have victory in general, the imagery that Paul is using is clearly that of the solemn, triumphal procession of a Roman emperor or general. Perhaps you've heard of what's called a Roman triumph. The Roman triumph was the crowning achievement of a Roman military general. Particularly during this Republican era, the event heralded the successes of a military commander who had led Roman forces to victory in the service of the state. The military hero would have had won a major land or sea battle in the region considered his province. He would have to have killed at least 5,000 of the enemy and ended the war. On the day of his triumph, the victorious general or the triumphator wore the royal purple and gold tunic and toga regalia that identified him as a near divine or near kingly person. He held a laurel branch in his right hand and an ivory scepter in his left. First would come the captives. The captive leaders, the allies and the soldiers and sometimes their families, they would walk in chains. Some were destined for execution. They captured weapons, the armor, the gold, the silver, The curious and exotic treasures were carted then behind those along with paintings and models depicting significant places and episodes of the war. Next in line, all on foot, came Roman senators and magistrates followed by the the general's lictors in their red war robes, their faces wreathed in laurel and the general in a four-horse drawn chariot. A slave would hold a golden crown over the general's head while repeatedly reminding him by whispering in his ears in the midst of the glory that he was still a mortal man and not the emperor. In some accounts, the general's face 
was painted red, perhaps in imitation of Rome's highest and most powerful god, Jupiter. The general rode in a four-horse chariot through the streets of Rome in an unarmed procession with his army, all the captives, and all the spoils of war in this great parade. According to history, at the time Paul writes this letter to Corinth, the latest Roman triumph had been proclaimed by Emperor Claudius to honor the victory of Astorius over the Britons in AD 51. Their triumph included a triumphal ark on which was an inscription that can still be seen in Rome. The inscription tells of a Briton, Caractactus, who was taken as a prisoner by the Romans, and he and his children were then in this triumph. They were shown mercy by the emperor. The Roman historian Tacitus writes that these prisoners, he says it like this, they passed from the ranks of the lost to the saved. This triumph would have been advertised throughout the known world. According to some scholars, when Paul writes from Rome to Timothy and speaks of Claudi and Linus in 2 Timothy 4.21, those were two of those Britain prisoners. But though Paul had never seen a Roman triumph because Paul had not yet been to Rome, and only in Rome were such triumphs celebrated, his description of the triumph is incredibly accurate. In verse 14, he alludes to the incense that accompanies a triumph. He says this, Now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. That phrase, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge, is an old way for saying, He diffuses the aroma of his knowledge. Somewhere in the triumphant procession, there would be two white oxen that were being led for sacrifice to Jupiter. These oxen were garland-decked and with gilded horns, and accompanying the oxen would be music, flowers would be strewn throughout the way, and clouds of smoke would be billowing from burning incense. These fragrant clouds of incense that accompanied the triumph came from fixed altars and also carried censers carried by the processional. The incense was an essential part of the triumph of a Roman general. It is the incense that Paul develops a beautiful analogy to the work of a missionary. He claims to be, as it were, Paul claims to be, as it were, an incense bearer in the procession of the conqueror. All Paul's words, whether of prayer or praise, thanksgiving or preaching, they were but as incense clouds bearing to all around that they were wafted through the air, the tidings that the conqueror had come. The savor of his knowledge is the aroma of the knowledge of God. Everywhere Paul went, he would take the aroma of the good news to penetrate the stench of sin. Isn't that what a missionary does? They are censor bearers of the sweet smell of the gospel in triumph of their Christ. The word manifests here literally means to diffuse. When I was in junior high school, I was a horrible child. I don't know if there's anything worse than a misbehaved junior high boy. Now, my class, we weren't blatantly disobedient. Oh no, we were worse. We were sneaky disobedient. One of our teachers who received probably the worst of our antics was our Spanish teacher in eighth grade. 
he happened to double as our eighth grade science teacher. His name was Mr. Hat. So, naturally, as a Spanish teacher, we called him Senor Sombrero. But one day in science, the lesson was on diffusion. So, Senor Sombrero, I mean Mr. Hat, brought in some cologne. He wasn't a good teacher. Now, this wasn't just any cologne. This was cheap. Back then, Kmart brand cologne. It smelled horrible. So in order to illustrate diffusion, Mr. Hat proceeds to put the cologne on. He starts dousing himself. And he says, class, you'll begin to smell this pretty soon. Well, we sat there and said, we can't smell it. With eyes watering, we continued to deny that we smelled that cologne. Puzzled, Mr. Hat was sure we should be able to smell it at this point. So what does he do? He puts more on. He douses himself. By the time we could really no longer stand the smell, Mr. Hat had soaked an entire bottle of brute cologne all over his body. I learned diffusion that day. There is nothing like the sense of smell. To this day, a ship has a distinct smell to me. It reminds me of being out to sea. It's a combination of JP5, diesel, haze gray paint, and salt water. When I'm aboard ship, I can always tell when I'm getting close to male birthing. There's a smell. It's a distinct smell. It's a smell of shampoo and socks. When I close my eyes, you know, I can still smell those small towns in Iraq. When I get home from work and I walk into the garage, it takes me about two seconds to realize that Kendall's been cooking because I can smell dinner waiting in the house. Or better yet, when she's baked her delicious, one-of-a-kind chocolate chip cookies. Oh, the sweet smell. This is the imagery of Paul. In every place they go, they diffuse, he says, they diffuse the sweet aroma of the gospel. Paul says they are a sweet smell to both those who accept the gospel as well as those who reject it. As is Paul's use of figurative language, we see the work of a deeply poetic imagination here in Paul. Keeping the image of the triumph in his mind, remember of these censers that are going through this parade with these, this incense, keeping that image in mind, Paul thinks of the widely different impression and effect which the odor of the incense would have had on the two classes of prisoners. To some in that parade, the incense would be a breath from paradise, giving life and health and mercy from the emperor. Remember the triumph over the Britons? They moved from lost to saved. This is the power of the gospel. Rather, it's the aroma of the gospel to those who accept it. It is sweet and lovely. It is literally a breath of fresh air. And yet to others, to those who reject the gospel, the sweetness would seem 
sickly, having in it the savor of death. For like the prisoners condemned to die, those who reject the gospel, the gospel to them is foolishness, foolishness and ultimately their judgment. Do you mind if I share with you just, simple observa- just some simple observations of how Paul diffused the aroma of the gospel? I'd like to give you all three, and then I'll speak briefly about each observation. Our time will be done. I notice as I read this passage that first, the diffusion of the gospel was providential. Secondly, I notice that the diffusion of the gospel was according to God's good pleasure. And thirdly, finally, I notice that the diffusion of the gospel was with purpose. Paul had grand plans of meeting Titus in Troas to receive the report, and he was excited to go to Corinth. Those plans did not work out. Multiple times he was diverted and had to resort to communicating by letter. But in the end, Paul ministered to that hurting church in spectacular ways. Why? Because the entire time, the providence of God was on Paul. God was directing Paul's steps. Church, God is directing your path. Do you consider changes in your schedules and plans to be inconveniences, or do you see them as opportunities for divine appointments for the triumph of the gospel? Our diffusion of the gospel is providential. God has a plan for his word, and it will not return empty. He is in control, and he's putting you exactly where he wants you. But our diffusion of the gospel is also according to his good pleasure. Not only is he sovereign over all, it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. We diffuse the gospel and the sweet aroma works according to his will as a sweet savior of Christ to both them that are saved and to them that are perished. I don't know why the gospel hardens the heart of some while softens the heart of others. I just know that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Therefore, we spread the aroma of the gospel wherever we go. But finally, the diffusion of the gospel, it's not just providential. It's not just according to his pleasure. I noticed that Paul diffused the gospel with purpose. In verse 17 of chapter 2, Paul says this, We are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. Paul had no plan B. He had no alternative plan. He was singular in his focus. In other passages, he said it like this, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Church, are you singular in focus? Are you diffusing the gospel with purpose? Isn't that the meaning behind whatsoever you do, therefore, whether you eat or whether you drink, do all to the glory of God? How do we glorify God in our eating and drinking? When we do it for the purpose of bringing more and more and more into his kingdom. When we do it to bring more to the throne to glorify him, the purpose is clear. We diffuse the gospel so that a great multitude, which no man can number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues will stand before the throne. And before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cry with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. That's our singular purpose. Our time is done. Thanks be unto God, which causeth always us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Thank God 
who allows us to participate in the victory parade of the King of Kings and allows us to diffuse the aroma of his gospel everywhere we go. The sweet aroma of the gospel is on its way to Bolivia. The diffusion of the gospel is going to Uruguay. The fragrance of the gospel is penetrating those who have been burdened for those with post-traumatic stress. The sweetness of the gospel is wafting into the bush of Alaska. The scent of the gospel is being absorbed in the Philippines. It is in Chuuk and in England and in prisons and in the military and in servicemen centers and in military installations around the world. It's right here in Chesapeake. The sweet aroma of the gospel will be diffused tomorrow across the Tidewater area as you, his church, go to your jobs and manifest the savor of his knowledge in every place. The gospel is advancing, and it's advancing by God's providence for his pleasure and with great purpose. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for allowing us to have the aroma of the gospel on our lives. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful and true to it. Lord, I pray that it would be manifested everywhere we go. Help us. Lord, we have missionaries who are going to go across the seas. Lord, and we will pray for them. We will help them. But may we not neglect our responsibility to take that gospel to the person who sits in the cubicle next to us at work, to the person who works beside us out in the field. Lord, help us to share that gospel with the children that are in our homes that we homeschool. May the aroma of the gospel always be present. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.